class until after Pesach. Well, not our last class, our last class at 11 o'clock. I hope to do a lot of learning together and growing together over Pesach. Um, and actually, one of the things I wanted to mention is that I'd like to, unless, and we don't have to discuss this now, but if you have strong opinions, otherwise, let me know. But I'd like to switch it up. I think maybe we could do a switch from the Parsha. There is a, a book, but I'm going to translate the book, so it's going to be more of the theme. There is a book by Nachmanides, Ramban, all about... Uh, the afterlife, and different opinions about Mashiach, and some major philosophical debates. Oh. It's a little bit of a dense book, but it's been my dream to translate the book, and so it'll give me, it'll be helping me, it gives me an impetus to translate it, and then I'll be giving you the English translations, you'll give me your edits, and we'll work on it together, and after a little while, it'll take a little while, we'll publish the book together. How's that? Wow. Uh, we'll split, the, we'll split the, the incredible amount of royalties that I'm sure will be just, you know, <laughs> pouring in for this very obscure book. Um, okay, so so that's the plan. The plan is after no, Pesach. Honestly, everybody, by the time you get to the age of 50, it's a big question. What happens? What happens? What happens? So, you know, it will, we'll talk about it. We'll have discussions, but it'll be a good springboard for, I think, discussions that I feel like we have here and there. Uh, so we'll take a break from the Parsha. We'll see how it goes. We'll give ourselves, you know, I like to see, you know, in, in the Shiva world, you know, you have what they call Zmanim. You know, from, from Sukkot to Pesach, and then Pesach, and then, you know, basically you have these different, like, set times. So Pesach through Sukkot is its own Zman. It's its own time. So we'll give ourselves that time. Usually in the summer I take off a little bit, so we'll, you know, check your emails. Uh, but not through the entire summer, but at least from after Pesach, ultimately up till Sukkot, with some breaks, we'll, we'll try going through this book. We'll see how it goes. If it goes well, we'll continue. If it doesn't go well, you'll let me know. It's okay. We could, we could uh, recalibrate. We're, we're okay. So today, as, as it was listed in the email, we are going to go through the Haggadah as best as possible. There is a beautiful custom. I grew up with this custom that the Shabbos before Pesach, on what is known as Shabbos Haggadah, people read through the Haggadah as a way of preparing themselves. Um, but we're going to start a little early because uh, there's a lot to do. Um, I don't know how far we're going to get. We'll try to get as far as we can. Uh, but, uh, you know, my goal over here is not to give you, you know, uh, ideas that, you know, my, my goal is not to give you uh, divrei Torah and, 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 and sermons and, and things. I want you to know what I want for me and for all of us. What is the Haggadah talking about? What is the Seder? You know, just go through passage by passage, translate, and just explain what is this passage all about? I want us to have a basic working knowledge uh, as far as we could get today, of what the Haggadah is actually referring to. I'll share some ideas as we go along, but that, that's the goal. The goal is to have uh, an introduction, you know, and, and we could all use it. We could all use the review and some level of introduction uh, so that when we come to the Seder night, we're fully prepared or fully. We're, we're better prepared. How's that? We're better prepared, okay? Sounds like a plan? That's the plan, okay? That's a long introduction. Okay, so let's begin. I'm gonna, I have three Haggadahs in front of me. We're going to try to keep track of everything. But you have these wonderful Haggadahs, which were donated by Seven Mile. So a big thank you to Seven Mile for, uh, I don't know if they, do they still do this? They give you free Haggadahs? I don't know. They, they were doing this one year, and then, and then uh, we, we needed for our Pesach Seder, and so he gave me like two boxes. So uh, a big thank you to Mr. Bohm uh, for doing so. So let's begin with Kiddush. So if you look on page three, we're actually not going to read through Kiddush, but Kiddush is the first part of the Seder. We say Kaddish. Kaddish is the word that we use for Kiddush. And we know that on Seder night, we don't have one Kiddush. We have four 
kiddishes, so to speak. We have four cups of wine, okay? For the record, if you don't like wine or drinking four cups of wine is a little much, you could drink grape juice as well. That is totally fine. But what's the idea behind drinking four cups of wine? Okay, so there are many different ideas. We, the, the, the simplest explanation that's given is that it represents, the four cups we have represent four different terms that are used to describe the redemption of the Jewish people from Egypt. Meaning, we didn't just go free, right? There's one thing to no longer be enslaved. There's something else to have a sense of freedom, right? Those are two separate things. One is I don't have work, and one is something far deeper where I am a free, independent, autonomous individual. That's a mindset change, which doesn't always go hand in hand with physical freedom. And so the four terms of freedom really describe a deepening of the experience of freedom, we, we drink these four cups and, and a cup of wine is seen as a sign of royalty, a sign of, of, of joy, a sign of expression of, of, of being someone, you know, that, that, that's not a slave. But the idea is that it's supposed to be a deepening experience. And that's why some explain we specifically drink wine. Why? Because with most foods or drinks, the more you have, the less you want more. Right? Meaning, let's say you have, let's say you love steak, okay? So you have a big, juicy, I don't know, whatever, X amount, uh, whatever, ounce steak, okay? And then you finish that huge steak, okay? Now, are you more or less hungry for more steak? Less hungry, right? Okay, there comes, everyone has their own cutoff points, but you know, at one point, you're no longer full. Wine actually is one of the unique food items that it's actually the opposite. Typically, what it actually does is that increases a sense of a, a thirst for it, right? That actually with wine, you actually become more thirsty for wine. There's a deepening of the experience. I'm not talking about getting, you know, drunk, plastered, whatever. I'm talking about there's a deepening of the experience. You want more and you actually enjoy it more, um, you know, as time goes on. And so some mystics explain that that's the idea behind the four cups. It's meant to represent freedom, but also we're supposed to see freedom not as a binary. Now, yesterday I was a slave, today I'm free, the Jews were slaves now. No, no, no. There's a deepening of the experience. And really, as we go through the Seder, we're supposed to have a deepening of our experience. Not a, you know, some, for some people it might be I get tireder and tireder. That, that might be true superficially, but the goal is to have a deeper and deeper connection to the notion of freedom that we're experiencing. That's one explanation behind the four cups of wine. And a related idea, which I just want to mention, and I just, I'm not going through the text of Kiddush, but just want to mention, and that is this notion that one of the greatest signs of freedom is being able to be free to make choices. Autonomy is the greatest freedom. You know, many, you know, freedom is not, you know, you could be enslaved to someone else, but there's still a sense of personal autonomy. And so some explain that we're deliberately engaging with something which could so easily enslave a person, right? Alcohol is something which traps people sometimes. And the goal is to say, I'm going to engage in something which could take me places I don't want to go, but I'm actually in control, right? I'm actually able to be free. I'm actually able to be a ben or bat chorin, a free person, and not be uh, beholden to the alcohol. Instead, I'm able to drink alcohol and still demonstrate that what am I going to do on Seder night? Not do things I'm embarrassed of. I'm going to sing more. I'm going to, you know, say the Haggadah with more fervor. I'm going to, uh, you know, have a more enjoyable and uplifting Pesach, right? I'm not going to go and, 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 and be enslaved to my more base impulses. Instead, I'm going to use that to elevate myself. And some see that also, yes, a person might be, if you're drinking really four cups of wine, you might be a little tipsy by the end of your Seder. That's okay. But look, what are we doing with our tipsiness? What are we doing at this moment? We're lifting ourselves up. We're doing something beautiful. We're doing something spiritual. We're doing something meaningful. And that, some explain, is part of the rationale behind the four cups of wine. Okay? Let's go a little further. We're going to get into the text soon. But right now, just, you know, Kadesh, uh, let's go to Orchats. What do we do during Orchats? We 
I can't believe it's almost Pesach, right? Okay, anyway, uh, it's sinking in. It's sinking in. This is why we do it. It lets it sink in. Okay, so Orchatz is we wash our hands. Why are we washing our hands? The, the truth is that historically, if you look in the Jewish code of law, any time anyone would dip something into something else, any liquid, you'd actually, you're supposed to wash your hands. Okay, we're, it's, it's part of the laws of purity and impurity. It's a little bit of a concept which we're not going to be able to unpack. But in, certainly in the, in the times of the temple, if you were living in your house and you wanted to go and dip some, you know, some celery or whatever, some, some, some carrots into some dressing or something like that, you would wash your hands. That's what you would do, right? Now, do you normally do that? Most of us don't. Some people do. Most of us don't, right? Eat with your hands. If you eat with your hands, it's okay. Oh, it's okay. Uh, okay, whatever. You could, you know, you could wash your hands, but certainly not washing your hands in a, you know, in a ritualistic fashion, right? Two and two, right? We do, that's, so why are we doing that specifically on Seder nights? The idea is that the Seder... And, and we're going to come back to this idea. The Seder is really meant to be the beginning of a spiritual journey. What that means is that we're supposed to see this as the beginning, just like the Jewish people on Seder nights when they were in Egypt. That's when their spiritual life really began. We have an opportunity once a year to really start fresh, to say, yeah, there are things which I am more ashamed of. There are things that I've done in the past that, that are mistakes. I, it's, 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 a, it's like a Yom Kippur and a Rosh Hashanah in the most joyful packaging, right? It's a new start. It's a fresh start. It's the beginning of a spiritual journey in an uplifting fashion. And there's this idea that when we start something, even though we recognize we're not going to hold on to that forever, but when we start, we want to start with a certain extra oomph, for lack of an English word. We want to start with a certain bang, right? It's true. Do, are we going to wash our hands when next time we dip something into something else? No. But when we begin, we want to begin with a bang. And therefore, this night, which begins our spiritual journey, we're going to up the ante. Normally, maybe you don't say, you know, you don't do this, you don't do that. But on Seder night, we act special, right? There's so many people, and, and this is just a sociological reality, that there are so many people who perhaps don't, uh, you know, whatever their level of observance is, whatever. But on Seder night, you know, they clean their house for Pesach, they eat uh, kosher Pesach food. There's something about it, and that's where we're tapping into. It's the beginning of a spiritual journey. We recognize as human beings, you can't hold on to the fire and the fervor endlessly, but that doesn't mean not to take advantage of the beginnings of those special, powerful moments and do it with more, more fervor. And so that's, that's what we're doing. We're basically trying to start with a bang, okay? That's the idea behind washing our hands as we begin the Seder, okay? Then what do we do? We dip a vegetable into salt water. Which vegetable do you use? Who here uses potatoes? All right, okay, we got the potatoes over here. Who here uses celery? Okay, everyone else? Anything else am I missing? What? Parsley. There we go. We got some yekish, uh, that the German vinegar. Okay, there we go. Okay, so we got parsley, celery, and potatoes. Someone once asked me if they're allowed to dip a French fry into ketchup. I guess so, technically. Uh, but okay, bottom line is we dip something in, and we're not going to get into a full halachic analysis, but the truth is you're not supposed to have a ton of that vegetable. It's supposed to be a little bit. You're not supposed to have too much because then it gets into a whole halachic question of an after bracha. So you're supposed to have like one piece of celery, one little piece of potato, now, I don't know about you, but, you know, Arab Pesach is a busy day. It's a stressful day. You know, you start the Seder, I don't know, a little late, right? And then you finally have that little bit of food in salt water. What's the first thing that goes through your mind? I want more, right? And so all the kids are always clamoring. It's like, ah, we want more. Okay. Yeah, everyone wants more, right? So I saw a beautiful idea by Rav Yosef Tzvi Ramon. He says that's precisely the idea. Again, going back to what is true freedom? True freedom is not I'm free to do whatever I want. That's part of freedom, but that's superficial. Freedom is, I am so free, I could say no. The ability to say no is one of the greatest signs of freedom. Just like we drink the alcohol and we don't 
fall apart, right? Similarly, we eat a little bit and we might be hungry and we say, but I could control myself. That sense of control, that sense of not in an unhealthy fashion, but the sense of being able to restrain, the sense of being able to make choices of my own and say, enough. I'm not going to be enslaved to my stomach and to my mind. No, I, I, I'm going to have and I'm going to be okay with this. That is also an expression in a, in, a, in a unique way, an expression of the freedom that we are experiencing on Seder night. Okay? Yeah, right? Okay, so you should always free, feel free when you have, uh, when you have chocolate, right? Um, okay, good. What's next? What takes place next? After we wash our hands and we dip the vegetable and we have a little vegetable, what do we do next? And we're skipping through the pages here. What? Yachatz, right? We break the matzah in half. And this is really where the experiential part of the Seder begins. Now, anyone here joining us for the Seder? One second. Okay, there we go. Okay, so we're, we have a second Seder here in, in Shul, and it's one of my favorite things. Sorry, I'm not, not, not trying to make anyone feel bad. Uh, but, but it's one of my favorite experiences because it's, it's, it's you know, I, I try to invite people into our home Seder. And what we try to do at our home is it's supposed to be an experience. We're supposed to be reliving the experience of Yitziat Mitzrayim, of the Exodus itself. Okay, so what is the idea of breaking that matzah? What are we doing? What we're doing is we are, we're saying this is, you know, if you are a poor individual, if you are someone who doesn't have a lot, right, then even if you have enough for one meal, you never eat the full meal. Maybe you eat a little bit and you save some for later. And so we begin to re-experience this sense of going through the stages of just like our ancestors were enslaved and they had nothing and they didn't know where their next meal was going to come from, right? Similarly, we break the matzah, we put part of it away, Right? And then we go ahead and we, we put part of it away to save it for later. That's the, that's the basic idea behind putting it in the afikomen bag. It's not about hiding. We'll get to hiding and stealing in a second. But the basic idea, the real, the, the classic idea behind it is that we are trying to reenact a sense of being an ani, a poor person. And just like our ancestors in Egypt, they got fed by the day. They didn't have a cupboard filled with food. They had nothing. And so we're trying to re-experience that by breaking our matzah, putting some of it away. Okay, let's talk about stealing the afikomen. This is a very interesting thing, uh, you know, very, very quick analysis of, of the idea of stealing the afikomen. Uh, it comes from, uh, you know, the earliest source or one of the earliest sources that talk about it is Maimonides, is the Rambam. The Rambam says, and it's based on the Gemara, actually, the Gemara is the earliest source, but the Rambam is, uh, elaborates a little bit. And that is that the Gemara says that we are, we chotfin esamatzot, which means like you snatch the matzot. What does that mean? The way that some of the classic commentators understand it is that you're supposed to just do something kind of silly with the matzah. You take, put it in a bag and you kind of start passing it around, like almost like you're playing hot potato. Why do you do so? So that the children will ask. That's really it. That's really the original source behind the matzah, behind the afikom, is that basically you did something, you put it in a bag, and then you do something a little odd to make the children ask. Now, eventually it evolved into this idea and it come, you know, go, and this, this custom goes back hundreds of years uh, where people would hide the matzah or people would try to steal the matzah. Everyone has different customs, some, you know, whatever, whatever it is, but, but this, this notion of stealing. Now, you know, there, there were some commentators who said, you know, who wrote, they said, this is a terrible, this is the night of Pesach and we're in, encouraging a sense of stealing. You know, what are we doing? It's, it's such a terrible value. But most commentators said, okay, then everyone knows that it's, part, it's all part of uh, a game. You know, it's not meant to be, uh, you know, to, to really, we're not really stealing from the head of the house. It's part of a game. And it's more than a game. It's a gimmick. It's a way of engaging everyone at the Seder. And that is just a, an important value to think about when you go into the Seder. You know, a, a Seder could be very boring. 
if it's not done properly. It could just be people reading the text and, and not, you know, and, and, and people like, okay, when we get into the food, when we get into the food, when we get into the food, just reading it, right? That's one way of going. But, but this idea of stealing the afikomen is representative of one of the core values that we need to think about when we have a Pesach Seder. How are we engaging everyone? Not only the children, but also the adults, right? How are we engaging that sense of wonder, that childlike wonder that all of us have? How could we reorganize, we can reconstruct our Seder in a way that engages people, that pulls people out, that causes people to think a little bit and act a little differently and, and not just go through the motions. That's the, the idea of stealing afikomen is, is, is just one facet of the goal of the night. If we are just running through it and it's not a mo- a, 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 an experience that's uplifting, that's, that's thought-provoking, we're missing the boat. So for each person, you have to know, if you have a Seder full of little kids, then it's more gimmicks, you know, for, for our Seder. You know, the first part of our Seder is very gimmicky because it's little kids. Eventually all pass out. Most of the, some of the adults stay up. And so, uh, and then, you know, and then what, what kind of engaging, stimulating conversations are you able to, to have? And you have to prepare that. You can't just assume, ah, I'm going to snap my fingers and it's going, no, but sometimes, you know, I know people who, who think about thought-provoking questions that they could ask, or they, they, they bring in, you know, different types of gimmicks. People like could bring in some, some historical item or historical like article or something to share that's not just a, something which is, you know, a talking point that everyone's going to listen and nod their head, but something that really causes people to think and reconsider. It's not just the children that we're trying to engage at Seder night. We're trying to engage everybody, okay? Now with that, we are now going to begin the main part of the Seder, the main part of the Haggadah, and that is the section of Magid, okay? So we're on page six now. Um, I'm going to hand something out as I, as I share about this next little passage over here. Um, what you have in front of you in one moment is just the structure of the Haggadah. So if you could just take and pass this all around. Um, okay, so the section we have over here is Magid. Magid is the really long section. Um, you know, we call, what do we call Pesach night? We call it the Seder. Seder means? We need two more. Two more? Oh, I think there's a, uh, there's, there's a whole bunch going around. Um, in order. In order, right? Now, I'll be honest. I've always felt that the Seder is the least ordered and organized text. <laughs> it seems chaotic, right? It's just this passage here, this passage there. It seems like a big mess, Right? I don't know, but that, that, that's always been my impression. I'm like, what is going on over here? Why do we do this here? Why is this there? And I, I recently, and again, this is once again credit to Rav Yosef Tzvi Ramon, and I've shared this with some of you in the past, but he does an incredible job at demonstrating the, the structure of the Seder. That there is actually an incredible amount of order in the Seder. And actually what he suggests, and, I'm, and we'll see it together in a moment, is that the Seder, the Magid, that long, long section of text, is actually made up of four components that follow the exact same sequence, but each have a different theme. Again, four different components that follow the same sequence, but each have a different theme. What do I mean by that? We know on Seder night we're supposed to have questions, right? There's a question. Right? We're supposed to be asking, why do we ask questions? Because that's the best way to, to really appreciate an answer. Right? If I just tell you information without asking you a question, it's not as meaningful. You know, one of my teachers told us from his teacher um, that he said the only way when he, one of our teachers who would spend a long, you know, he, he would tell us that his teacher was Rav Yitzchak Kutner, a very, very important uh, scholar. He's actually the author of those words that we see over here. Uh, Lanier Tzamin, he wrote a poem that, that included those words. Um, but he was, he was a master, master teacher. And he suggests, he told my, my teacher that before, when he, before he went out to, to become an educator, he said one lesson, one, mess, one thing you have to know. He said, what's that? He said, never tell your students any information until their tongues are white from asking. 
Never tell them any. In other words, if you don't have a thirst for it, it's not going to resonate, right? If you ever learn a passage of the Talmud, the Talmud people say is very confusing. But you know what? They, it's question and answer. Because if you don't have a question and an answer, then you don't really appreciate the information. It's only when like, oh, this is problematic. Ah, and now there's a resolution. That emotional experience, that give and take actually makes the answer so much more meaningful. So on Saturday night, we have questions and then we have answers, okay? And then there's something unique about Seder night because in addition to reviewing the story of the Exodus, which we do every single day, according to Jewish law, we say the Shema. And the last section of Shema is, uh, we remember the fact that God took us out of Egypt. What's unique on Seder night is that we speak about the Exodus and we say, thank you. It's not just remembering, but it's saying there's an emotional response. I remember the Exodus. I remember that you took us out of Egypt and I'm thanking you for doing so. Okay, so there's, it's this question, there's an answer, and then there's a praise. So if you look, and, and we're not gonna, it's gonna be hard to look at this in the Haggadah, but I'm just gonna, gonna share with you, but you'll see the four, the, the Haggadah, the, the section of Magad is split up into four different sections. The first section begins with the words Manishtana, right? The famous four questions that are asked. And then immediately after Manishtana, it follows with the words Avadim Hayinu Lefaro B'Mitzrayim. Avadim Hayinu, whatever tune you sing, right? So there is, there's an answer. What's the answer? The answer is, we used to be slaves and now we're free. And then immediately after that passage, there is a short passage that says, Baruch HaMakom Baruch Hu. Okay, let's, let's look at it inside, actually. Let's do it together, actually, okay? So if you look on page six, there's Manishtana, that's the question, okay? And then you turn the page to page number seven, there's an answer. It says, after asking the question, then it gives the story of the Exodus. It says, we used to be slaves, and then God took us out, etc., 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 okay? And then, if you look on page nine, after the story, it says, Baruch HaMakom Baruch On page nine, we say, or, or page 10, we say, blessed is God, and we thank God for making us free. That is the end of section number one. Section number one had a question. Why is this night different than all other nights? We then have an answer. We used to be slaves and now we're not. And it goes on a little bit of a tangent. And then that section concludes by saying, thank you, Hashem, blessed is God for freeing us. What is the focus of that section? If you look closely, um, let's, let's go back to page seven. We're going to do a bit of jumping around now. If you look back to page seven, it says, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt and Hashem took us out from there with a strong hand. And okay, and if he would not take us out, we would still be slaves. Essentially, what are we focusing on? We're focusing on our physical slavery. You know, the first and most basic element that we're celebrating on Seder night is that we were physically slaves. We had to build pyramids or whatever we did back in Egypt. We had to do this. We had to that. We were physically slaves and God freed us. Question? The answer is the story of the Exodus on the most superficial, basic level. And then it concludes on page nine with Baruch HaMakom Baruch We say, blessed are you, God. We thank God. Okay. That's the first set of questions. Then on page nine, we have another set of questions. And that is the questions as articulated by the four sons. Right on page nine, we have the wise one, the wicked one, the simpleton, uh, the simpleton, the one who doesn't know how to ask them. They're all asking questions. That's another set of questions. Okay. And then what's the response? Turn to page 11. Turn to page 11. Okay. And what is the response? The response is on page 11, the second paragraph on page 11 or page 12. I'll read it in English. In the beginning, our forefathers served idols. But now, Kirvanu HaMakom, the omnipresent one, has brought us close to service. In other words, we used to be idolaters, and now we serve God. That's also a story about our freedom, but the angle is different. 
It's no longer a question of our physical bondage, that we are physically slaves. Now we're focusing on the fact that we are spiritually free. We serve God. We have a whole new way of looking at life. We are connected to Hashem. It's a radically different way of discussing the same story, but from a different perspective. Again, it's important to ask you, what happened? What, what's the Exodus? What's, what's Pesach all about? We went free. Is it, is, it, is it the fact that we left Egypt? Or is it the fact that we went from Egypt to Harsinai and received the Torah? Which one is it? They're both true but it's different angles, right? So first we have the question, why is this night different? We answer, well, we were physically slaves and now we're free. And then we say, thank you, Hashem. And then we say, hey, now we have another set of questions. And the answer is, you know, why is this night different? And all the questions the four sons ask. And then the response is, oh, we used to be idolaters. We used to have lived this uh, decadent, immoral life. And now we serve God. We live this elevated life. That's also a story about our freedom, but it's just a different perspective. It's the focus on the spiritual redemption. Right? And then what do we do? And then we say, if you look on page 11 or in the middle of page 12, Baruch Shomer Hafta Chasul Yisrael. Once again, we say, thank you, Hashem. We praise God. Right? So once again, there is question. There's answer, a whole new angle. And then a praise of God, thanking God for this freedom. So we had a storyline of the physical salvation and then the spiritual one. Everyone with me? Is this still with me? Okay. Let's keep on going. We're going to do a little bit more of the overview, then we'll see how much time we have to get into the text itself. And then, if you look on the bottom of page 11 or page 12, what does it say? Here's the textual part. Okay. And this part is a little bit more detailed. You know, before we get to the third part, let's, let's, let's go back just for a second. We're just going to jump around a tiny bit. Let's go back to page six, the beginning of the Magid section. I just want to make an observation because it's one of my favorite observations. If you look at the top of page six, there's a passage there. It's in Aramaic and in English. This is the bread of affliction, right? We just broke the bread and we said, ah, our ancestors in Egypt, they broke their bread also because they couldn't keep so much. And then what do we say? Whoever is in need, let him come and conduct the Seder Pesach. Whoever is hungry, let him come and eat, right? We welcome people into our home. It's a bit of a funny invitation, don't you think, right? You're sitting in your house, table is set for as many guests, you know, and you're like, whoever is hungry, come and eat. Okay, no one's coming. I guess we'll eat, right? I mean, like, what's going on over here? It's, pretty, it's a pretty bizarre thing to do. So the, commentary, the medieval commentators point out that, you know, one of the questions people ask is, why is it in Aramaic, right? This pat, like, the whole Haggadah is in Hebrew, and there are many mystical answers, but the, 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 the most honest answer is that this wasn't part of the Haggadah. You know what happened, according to some of the medieval commentators? In, 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 in what they used to do is on Seder nights, people would open their doors before they began, and they'd say, whoever needs a Seder, come and join us. And they used their Aramaic because that was their vernacular. That was what the language that was spoken. And they would literally invite people in as they began their Seder. Okay, whoever's hungry, come and eat. We have extra food. Who doesn't have extra food on Seder night, right? We, all, we, we made too much food, right? Of course, there's always, right? So I made too much. Come, come join us, right? And, and that's, so when, although we don't do that, you know, uh, practically right now, we don't open our door and welcome guests in, because probably there's no one standing outside of the door, and if they are, you should probably call the cops. But, but the point is that, that at least we're reminding ourselves of this beautiful custom, and if you do have a Seder, and you are able to have some guests, you should. It's a beautiful thing. On Pesach, we specifically, you know, one of the, Rav Soloveitchik used to say that, that one of the signs of freedom is that when you're a slave, you only focus on yourself. You know, one of the most chilling, I, 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 I have such a hard time reading this passage in Elie Wiesel's Night, right? I'm sure you've all read Elie Wiesel's his book called Night. He has that, a couple of passages where he talks about the, you know, fathers and sons, like, it's hard, I, I, it hurts me to say, like fighting over like scraps of bread, right? Like beating each other over scraps of bread, just like the, the, the debased 
you know, a reality that, that comes about in a, when a person is a slave, when they have, they have nothing, then their, their sense of huma- humanity, their sense of their ability to think about others is, is robbed from them. It's taken away from them. And so when we are free, the first thing that we do is, what, one expression of that, I should say, is that we're able to think about others. That is one of the greatest signs of freedom. That's why Pesach, we specifically do with family, we specifically do with others. We're trying to express our freedom. And so although we don't practically open our doors anymore, at least we begin the Seder with that mindset. I need to think beyond myself. That is what freedom really looks like. And therefore we have this, at this point, almost like a, a ceremonial invitation, but it's meant to impress upon us what freedom really looks like. Freedom is not thinking about just me, it's being able to share whatever I have, whether it's a lot or a little, with those around me. Okay. Um, okay. Then this next section we have over here um, is Tzei Ulamad. Okay, so on the, let's go back to page 11 now. Let's just go back there. Page, page 11 on the bottom of the page. And this passage, maybe we'll read together for a little bit, but I just want to explain what this passage is. And we've given an overview, and then we'll jump in. So how does this passage begin? It says, Ma bikesh lavan ha'arami la'asot. What did Lavan want to do? Again, that sounds like a question. Okay, so section number three again begins with a question. And then this is the part of the Haggadah that most people fall asleep or get bored. Okay, it's a pity. It's a beautiful section, but it's a lot of text. Okay, this, this text goes um, from, you know, this page all the way through until we get to, uh, until we get to, well, well you know, the, the, the answer is, you know, the, the, all, these te- all these verses goes ahead and gives the story of, uh, of, of the Yitzhiyat Mitzrayim, the Exodus, in much detail, all the way from page 11 through page 21. A lot of details. And how does that section, so it gives a whole story of Pesach in, in a lot of detail. And then it gives the answer. And then it gives, sorry, then it gives the praise. What's the praise? Our famous, our favorite praise. What is that? Dayenu. Right? That section concludes with Dai Dayenu. What is Dayenu? Dayenu is praise. We're thanking God. So that's section three. Section three begins with a question. It's a very long answer. And then... We go ahead and we and we we sing a praise. Now, why do we have all this text over here, and what text are we actually reading? So, bear with me as I as I as I explain what, what what's happening over here. This section is like a little bit Talmudic. Okay, it gives you like a little tiny insight in terms similar to some of the style that the Talmud actually uses. What it does is it takes one verse. Let's read it together. Let's look. If you look on the bottom of page eleven, there's a words that are in bold, or the bottom of page twelve, right? Vayera Mitzrayma, Vayagersham. Oh, sorry, Arami Overavi, that's really where it begins. The Aramean sought to destroy my father. Who's the Aramean? Who is that? That is Lavan, Yaakov's father-in-law, right? He tried to kill our father. How did he try to kill our father? Uh, He made his life, well, towards the end, when Yaakov's running away, we know that Lavan runs after him and basically tries to take everything from him. There's another beautiful explanation, which a little out of character for what we're talking about over here, but I have to share from Michal Tversky. He says, the most, to me, the most gorgeous idea. He says, you know what it means that, that the Aramean, that Lavan tried to destroy our father? It doesn't mean that he literally tried to kill. Who, Avi, we normally, our father, we normally assume is who? Is Jacob, Yaakov, right? Because Lavan tried to kill his son-in-law. He did. As, as, when Yaakov ran away, he tried to kill him. But Michal Tversky says, no, you know what Avi over here means? It means our father in heaven. So what does this mean? What it means is that Lavan made Yaakov's life miserable, right? We all know that. Well, Lavan was living right from the beginning. He went and switched one daughter for the other daughter. Then he switched the prices daily and he never gave him anything and he made him work and basically made his life so miserable. And there's this very real phenomenon and that is that when we, you know, we live, we have, when we feel like no one cares about us, we sometimes um, see that as an extension of God not caring about us. If people mistreat us, we see that as we get angry at God. God, why are you allowing these things to happen to me? Clearly, you don't care. 
And so the idea of Lavan trying to destroy her father was not so much of a physical act, but rather was more of a spiritual act. By making Yaakov have such a miserable life, he was trying to decimate, trying to destroy Yaakov's belief in a loving God. How could God love me if my life is so terrible? If all these bad things, are, I'm doing everything that's right and all these bad things are happening. So Lavan Bikesh Lakoreta call. He wanted to destroy everything. You know why he wants to destroy everything? Not by physically killing our father, but by giving him such a miserable life, causing Yaakov to second guess his faith in a loving God. That's what it means that Lavan tried to kill us by making our life so difficult. And it's a, a powerful insight. You know, we, we, our, our human relationships place, he, he was talking about in the context of a relationship of a parent to a child, that if a parent mistreats a child, not only is that terrible, which it is in, in and of itself, but it causes the conception of what a loving father is to be impacted as well. If a child, you know, we, we call God our father. But if our image of a father is some overbearing, uh, cynical, critical, you know, individual, then how does that give us a metaphor for a loving father? Okay, powerful, I think, to me, a very powerful idea. Okay, let's put that in the back of our mind. Let, let's, let's, let's understand what, what this passage is all about. So if you look, again, on the bottom of page 11, there's the words in bold. The Aramean sought to destroy my father. Okay, Arami Ovid Avi. Then it says, Vayered Mitzrayma. We went down to Egypt. Vayagar Shambim Seima'at. And we went down there. We lived there in a, with a few people. Vayisham Legai Gadal Atsum Varav. And we, we were there as a great nation, very, very strong, okay? Mighty and numerous nation, okay? So remember those words that we just read. Now let's turn the page. Look at the next page on page 13. What happens then is, Vayered Mitzrayma. The, word, the first words of that verse are now going to be analyzed. What does it mean we, were, we went down to Egypt? He went down to Egypt, right? It's, it's a quote, and then explains, compelled by divine decree. And then we quote the next words of that original verse. Vayagar Sham, and he sojourned there, okay? And implies that our father did not go down to settle, but only to live there temporarily, right? In other words, it takes that original verse and then it breaks down the verse into word by word by word and it analyzes it, okay? So it says, again, let's just read the paragraph. He sojourned there, implies that our father did not go down to settle in Egypt, but only to live there temporarily, as it is written, they, the sons of Jacob, said to Pyro, we have come to sojourn in this land because there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the hunger is severe in the land of Canaan. Now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen, right? So what happens? We have one verse, we break that verse up, we quote one part of the verse, and we connect it to an earlier verse from a different part of the Chumash. Are you following over here as this, as this works? And we do the next thing. Keep on reading. Few in number. As it is written, with 70 souls, your ancestors went down to Egypt, and now the Lord your God has made us as numerous as the stars of heaven. Right? So it takes the first verse that we read, and then it shows how that's true by quoting another verse to support that. And then it continues. Uh, you know, great and mighty. As it is written, the children of Israel are fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and became very, very mighty, and the land became filled with them. Right? So basically we have original verse. We show how each word of that verse is supported by an even earlier verse. And that's what this whole section is. It's taking a couple of verses and showing how those verses are supported by earlier verses. Why are we doing this? What's this all about? Right? What, 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 what is this textual analysis? So we're clear, it, it, it's a moment of study, right? We're basically, we're studying the text analytically, right? Which is, which is one of the ways that we're going to tell the story. Some people are experiential people. They want to sing and they want to dance and they want to pretend they're leaving Egypt by walking around the table and putting bags over their backs and dressing up as Pharaoh and, and throwing, you know, plagues all over the table. And some people connect the story by textual analysis, by studying actual books. Depends who you are, right? So that's what we're doing in this section over here. It's the textual analysis of the story of 
Yitziat Mitzrayim. But, but the structure still needs some explaining. Whoa. We, let me ask you a question. Those words in bold, does anyone know which Torah section they're actually from? Yeah, these are uh, at the end of the Zvarim. There's a recitation that you make when you bring the Zikurim this is what you have to say to the Kohen. Excellent, excellent. So there is a mitzvah in the Torah called Bikurim, which means we take our first fruits, wherever you are in Israel, when you have like your, you have a orchard in your backyard, whatever it is, you see the first bud, you, you put a little ribbon on it so you know which ones are the first. And then when it's fully developed, you take those first fruits from all of your stuff and you bring it to Jerusalem, to Yerushalayim, to the Beit HaMikdash, the Beit HaMikdash, and you bring it there and you recite this long passage. The words we're reading over here, the words in bold are from that long passage, okay? That long passage begins with Arami, Ovid, Avi, Vayer, Mitzrayim. All the words in bold are from that original passage. And then as you continue on page 15, at the top of the page 15, there is, uh, it's a continuation of that passage. On the top of page 17, it's a continuation of the passage, etc., etc. It goes through, uh, we're basically reading that passage, okay? And then we're showing from that passage, so fine, let, let's pause for a second. When we go and we, we, we bring our first fruits, what is the nature of, the, of, of that experience? What are we, what, why are we coming to the Beit HaMikdash? Gratitude. Gratitude, right? We're saying thank you to God, right? So it's a moment of when your first fruits, you know, they don't do this anymore. But in stores, some, some stores still have this. They have like the first dollar bill that they received, the first bill, right? I, don't, I haven't seen that in a long time, right? So, right, basically in a store, but right, the first is, it's exciting. Right? So if you are a farmer, I'm not a farmer, or if you have a garden, right? the first represents like, ah, this is the joy. The joy when it first starts to bud, it's, there's something exciting, right? So it's basically, it's like taking that dollar bill, the first dollar you got, and bring it to God and saying, thank you. So that's one reason we're using that passage, because again, the whole purpose of the night of Pesach is gratitude. It's a moment of saying, thank you, right? That's the simple understanding. But there's a deeper understanding. You know, w- w- this group of people that are bringing Bikurim, bring the first fruit. The first group of people to bring first fruits to, um, to the Beit HaMikdash. Did they experience themselves? Did they experience this, the, the Exodus? No, they did not. Because the people who left Egypt, they all died in the desert, right? The people who enter Israel... And ultimately, after 14 years of conquest and division, start bringing first fruit to the Mishkan and ultimately to the Beit HaMikdash. They are people who did not experience the Exodus themselves. And yet here they are in this passage. They're speaking in the first person, right? And they're saying, they're speaking about their own personal story as if they themselves experienced the Exodus, right? It's actually the very first time that we have someone who wasn't physically there describing as if they were there, as if they themselves were in Egypt, right? And what's happening? We're taking their passage, and what we're doing is, again, we're taking each word, we're saying, let's say again, um, you know, Gadol um, that they were great and mighty, right? And then it says, as it is written, and we bring a source from where? From the book of Exodus, from when it actually happened. And so do you see what's happening? What we're doing, basically, is we're taking a storyline of people who did not experience the Exodus, and they are connecting their story to their parents or grandparents, their words, even though they didn't experience it, they're saying, oh, but I'm connected to something before me. And that's why we're taking these passages over here. And that's why we're breaking them up because what we're trying to do is emulate that. We're saying, okay, this is our story, but it connects to a story before us. And the very first biblical example we have of that are the children of Israel who entered the land of Israel, who they themselves didn't leave Egypt, but they're saying, we left Egypt. You know why? Because my parents left Egypt. 
That's what these verses are. They're basically a, not a first-person account, but as, as, as if first-person accounts connecting to a first-person account. That's what we're emulating. On Seder night, we didn't leave Egypt, right? But we're trying to connect ourselves to a story that precedes us. And that's why we're taking these verses over here because they are connecting us to something that comes before. Does that make sense? You're with me? Right? So that's the whole, and the whole idea behind, every, behind these verses. And that's what uh, we're reading through in these verses. I was hoping to go through the verses, but I'm taking way too long um, explaining the structure of the Haggadah. Oh I hope that's okay. Um, and yes. So the Bikurim were actually brought by the, by the, they, they were brought as, it, it's part, so there, there's a number of gifts that the people end up bringing. Some of them, they end up eating themselves and some of them, they end up, they have to give only to the Kohanim, right? Some to the Kohanim, some to the Levi, first, first fruit, right? There's a whole bunch of tithes that they're going to be bringing, uh, but some of the things are going to be given, so the Bikurim are going to be given to the Kohanim. They're going to bring other things to Yerushalayim as well that they're going to be particip- partaking of by themselves, right? So typically they would come to Yerushalayim with a number of different gifts that have to distribute at that time and spend some time in Yerushalayim, you know, uh, you know engaging in, in, in the different, uh, you know, what, whether it's things they have to eat in Yerushalayim or things that they distribute to the Kohanim, like the first fruits. Right, right. Okay. Um, gosh, okay, I'm sorry. I thought we're going to, we're not, we're not going to go through the, the text itself, but that's okay. We're, gonna, we're getting an overview. Hope that's okay. Bird's eye view? Okay. Let's go, let's go to the bottom of page 19. Um, so the bottom of page 19, we have, this is the end of the, anal- towards the end of the analysis, we do something interesting. Um, so first we list the 10 plagues, okay? Very important, the 10 plagues. Um, now the 10 plagues, um, okay, you'll notice in the passage before the 10 plagues, we'll read it in English, Okay, there's a passage that begins with blood and fire and pillars of smoke. Another explanation of the preceding verse. Each two-word phrase represents two plagues. Hence, strong hand indicates two. Outstretched arm, two. Great awe, two. Miraculous signs, two. Wonders, two. What's that all about? What are we, what are we saying? We're basically, we basically take a verse, and each word in that verse implies something in the plural. And there are five words in the verse. So we say, ah! We have a proof. There are 10 plagues. Why? Because there are five words and each word is in the plural. So we eat five times two equals 10. Voila. What in the world are we talking about? Like, what, what is this? This is like, uh, you know, uh, first grade math. I mean, what, 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 what's the, what's the, what does this passage mean over here? We're basically, again, it, it's, it's analyzing the last verse we just read and pointing out that everything's, there's two words in each verse and therefore it implies two and there are five words, 10 plagues. What does this mean? And so the medieval commentators point out what it means actually is as follows. There are each, what is the purpose of the plagues? Someone to ask you, hey, you're, you're Jewish. Sorry? To soften Paro's heart. Right, to, to, to soften Paro's heart, to let my people go, to cause, cause, right? Also to punish him perhaps, right? That's typically the way we're taught, that the plagues are about beating down Paro, forcing him to let us go and also punishing him for all the slavery. But the commentators point out, what is the, mean, the deeper meaning of saying that that, there's, that the, five, the 10 plagues are actually a set of twos, it's to point out that there are like a double-sided coin. There are two separate sides to the plagues. One side is the punishment and the beating down of Paro, but there's also an education and something which is loving, which is taking place at the same time. Simultaneously, just as the Egyptians were being beaten down and being told and being uh, learning that they were not in control and that they had to let the Jewish people go and being punished for all, that they, all the crimes they committed, at the very same time, the purpose of the plagues was actually to show God's mastery of the world. And if you look very closely, 
you want to have a real good textual analysis at your Pesach Seder, okay, I'll, you know, I'll be very impressed. But if you go read through the 10 plagues in the Torah itself, you'll notice there's introduction to each set of plagues um, that, that sounds a little different. The first time that there are plagues, God says, now Paro will know that I am God, right? And then later on, the next set of plagues, God says, now Paro will know that I am God um, who is in the land, and then I'm God who's in the land who distinguishes between, you know, the, the Jew and the Egyptian. It, it has like a different introduction for each set of plagues. And what the commentators point out is that each set of plagues, if you actually divide the plagues, Dam, Tzvardea, Kinim, the first three plagues, and then, you, and then you go ahead and you take the beast, the pestilence, and the boils, and then you take the hail, locust, darkness, firstborn. Each of them come to teach the Jewish people about God. It actually was God's way of introducing himself. So there's this duality to the plagues. On the one hand, there's a punishment. At the same time, there is something loving. God was trying to introduce himself to us. And by manipulating the water, he's saying, hi, maybe you didn't know I exist, but I'm here. And all of a sudden there are frogs. Oh, that's God, right? And then as the plagues continue, you start to see a God who distinguishes between the Egyptians are getting hurt and the Jews are not getting hurt. Right? Oh, wait, this God's not just a God who stands up here, but God who actually is very involved in the details of our life. And then as time goes on, God shows even greater mastery, right? So the idea is that the plagues are not just meant to, again, punish or to cause the Jewish people to go, but also to, to introduce himself to the Jewish people. And that's the idea of the duality. And it's actually the idea, if you look at the bottom of the page, this interesting acronym we have over here, Rabbi Yehuda, Ju, Rabbi Judah, Rabbi Yehuda abbreviated the 10 pla- plagues, composing three words from their Hebrew initials, Zitzach, which is Dam, Tzvardei, Akinim, Adash, Be'achav, What's it all about? Where we don't need Rabbi Yehuda's a genius. Rabbi Yehuda's a great Talmud scholar. Very nice. He gave us a little acronym. Like, do we really need him to do that for us? What's the deeper meaning? The deeper meaning is that he's categorizing the plagues. He's pointing out to us that the first three had a most basic function of an elementary, basic education of God. And then as it progressed, the next three had a deeper education until the final set of plagues uh, had an even deeper um, meaning as well. Okay, let, let's, uh, so that, that is, uh, you know, we, 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 let's turn the page. We get to Dayenu and... Um, and Dayenu, again, is the end of part three, which is the textual study. And it concludes, again, there's a question, what did Lavan attempt to do? There's the answer, the verses, and then there is the praise, which is Dayenu. And that is the textual analysis, textual story of the Pesach Seder. Let's get to the final section, which is on page 25. Um, this is a section in my house. Yes. Both. If you actually look at the text, uh-huh. you, if you start again, you, you, could, you could spend a couple of hours I doing this. this. Good. You'll notice. Good. Good. So plague number one is there's a warning. Plague number two, there's a warning. Plague number three, there's no warning. And then plague number four, there's a warning. Plague five, there's a warning. Plague number six, there's no warning. There's a very clear pattern. Now, that, that's the most basic difference. And you start looking deeper, the terms that God uses start to change. The first set of terms that God uses is, I am God. And then he gets into a little bit of a longer introduction as to who he is. And then the last one is an even longer introduction in terms of who he is. So it's exactly that. It's basically, it's categorization, but also reflecting different themes and different manifestations, different features of God. But again, you gotta, you gotta through the text properly to really explain it. So let's get to the last section of Magid. This is the long section. This section, my father is Israeli. Uh, he has, still speaks with a very thick Israeli accent, um, and English is not his first language or second language or whatever, you know, but, but nonetheless, when we got to the section, you'd always turn to everyone at the Seder and say, I don't care what language you speak, 
You got to read this in English if you don't know it in Hebrew, because this section really, this last section really explains the three different features of Seder night. And it's important that we know what we're talking about. Again, which really speak, it's not just meant to be a ritual. We're not supposed to be saying words. We're supposed to be doing something more. So what is the last section? Let's read it together. It's the middle of page 26, okay? Ramaliel used to say, whoever does not discuss the following three things on Pesach has not fulfilled his duty. Namely, Pesach, which is the Paschal offering, the Paschal offering, Matzah, the leavened bread, Mar, the bitter herbs. Okay, and how does the section begin? Pesach. Question. Why did our fathers eat the Passover offering during the period of the temple? And then it gives an answer, right? So again, question, answer. Again, this is section number four. And this section, you know, many people, uh, you know, so this section is, well, as we'll see, is an experiential section. For each one of the foods that we're going to mention, Pesach, Matzah, and Mar, we're going to point to the item. Now with Pesach, what do we point to? Nothing, because we don't have a Paschal lamb, okay? But in the ancient world, they would say, Pesach, why do we eat the Paschal lamb? And they would point to the Paschal lamb, okay? And basically, this is what we, you know, in, in education, you know, when we were, even me, when we, I went to school, you know, everything was on the, was, where the teacher would, would speak, and maybe they would write things down on the board a tiny bit, right? Some of you, right, they'd have a chalkboard, right? Back, back before they had whiteboards, and they would, uh, you know, they would write some, here and there, they'd write a few things on the board, right? Nowadays, there's, uh, you know, they've learned that, you know, some people learn by listening, and some people learn visually by seeing things. And some people learn by experiencing things. They need to touch, they need to feel, they need to do something in order to learn it, right? Some of you, you know, may, may not have done so well in school because they were only teaching by talking and you needed to actually visualize or touch or feel, right? So on Pesach night, we're trying to engage all the different types of learners. So the last section was very academic, text after text after text. That's good for those who like to think, and, but that doesn't work for everyone. So this section we actually lift up the items that we're talking about. We're saying, oh, Pesach, it's the Paschal lamb. Look, it's this big lamb over here that that's, we're about to eat. You know, this is what it's all about, right? That we're pointing to it and we're, we're passing it around. And then we get to the next one, matzah, why? And we pick up the matzah. We're, again, it's, we're touching it, we're feeling it. We need to, it's, an, it's what we call experiential learning. We visualize, we touch it. It's a different way of learning the message, right? Because we have to engage everyone. Right? We can't say, oh, oh, well, you know, Judaism is only for people who could like study Talmud. No, Judaism is for everyone, right? So for some people, they're going to get into the analysis and some people aren't. And that's okay. Pesach night represents that. So that's why the last section is, again, we ask the question, the answer, we're still using words, but we're pointing to things. We're touching things. We're visualizing. We're experiencing things. That's how we're learning these answers. So again, the Pesach, why do we eat it? Because God jumped over our houses, etc. Right? That's the word Pesach. God jumped over our houses. Matzah, zuzh, shuma. Why do we eat the matzah? Okay? And then we talk about the fact that when we left Egypt, our matzah didn't have time, to, our bread didn't have time to grow. Okay, we take the middle, and we hold the middle matzah when we do that. And then we turn the page to page 27 or 28, and we say, Marar, why do we eat this bitter herb? Again, a question. And then we get an answer because the Egyptians embitter the lives of their fathers in Egypt as it is written, et cetera, et cetera. That's the question. Those are the answers. And then the next section all the way until, which brings us up until the meal, is a shortened version of Hallel. Hallel is praise, is thank you. So if you just noticed, there are four sections. All of, each one starts with a question. It has an answer and has praise. The first one is about the physical redemption. Most basic, superficial level, we are free, we're no longer slaves. The second question and answer, praise, is all about the spiritual redemption. We used to be idolaters, now we serve God. The third one is a textual study. It, that engages one type of learner. 
why uh, uh, Lavan wanted to say Oman Ma Bikesh? What did Lavan want to do? And then we give a very long answer. That's the te- then it finishes with a praise. And then the fourth one is the more experiential, touchy feely uh, way of going through the story. We ask questions, we point to the matzah, we point to the marah, and that's and then we praise. We finish with the halal, which is the halal is when we sing. It's much more the the praise at that point is much more. Labadik, for lack of a better word. It's basically, it's, it's in live, you know, it basically saying it's supposed to be much more joyous, and we conclude with that. Now, one just observation about the, the Pesach Matzamar. The order seems a little bit off, right? If we are trying to reenact the Exodus, what, what would be the order that we would, um, what would be the order? Which? Marar. Marar. Marar, Pesach Matzah, right? First, they embittered our lives. Then we had the carbon Pesach, and then as we were leaving, the bread didn't have time to grow, and that's what the matzah is all about, right? Instead, we do Pesach, matzah, mar, we switch mar, which should have been in the beginning, into the end. And so I'll just share with you one beautiful idea from Rabbi, uh, Rabbi, Avram, uh, from eight, Rabbi uh, Abraham Tversky, Dr. Rabbi, Rabbi Dr. Abraham Tversky, who said a beautiful, beautiful insight. You know, very often we're in a, you know, we find ourselves from time to time as part of life in difficult situations. And while we're in the experience itself, it's, we're, we're in it. We, we don't even know what we're going through. We don't even know how it's impacting us. We don't even know what the, like, how bad it is because we're just trying to like, not drown. We're just trying to float and not be so overwhelmed. And it's only later on when we're able to stand outside of that experience that we're able to look back and say, oh, this is what I went through. At the time, I don't even know how bad it is or what it is and how it's impacting me. We know it's bad. We know we're stuck, but we don't know the extent of it. Later on, I can look back and reflect and say, ah, this is really terrible. And that's what we're doing over here. We're getting to the end of the Seder, or at least the, the, the beginning part, the end of the, the main part of the Seder. And that is that we're trying to really appreciate, go back and think about the story of Mitzrayim. While the Jews were enslaved in Egypt, right? Many of them wanted to stay there because at the time it's just like, oh, I can't even think of tomorrow. Okay, give me a break, right? Well, I just, I, I'm so overwhelmed by my now and I just, I can't, I can't even, I can't even think about the next moment. Forget freedom, Israel, pfft. Forget about it, right? And so it's only after the freedom that we're able to look back and say, oh, and that's what the Mara was? That's how bad it was? That's, right? And obviously the, the very relevant personal message is exactly that. That very often we find ourselves in difficult times. We have to remind ourselves while we're in a difficult time. Right now, there's gonna be a time when I'm gonna look back on this and learn something from it and see how I've grown. Right now, I just have to get through it. There will be the proper time to analyze and appreciate the Mara is at a later stage. Right now, we just... Brace ourselves, we push through, we forge through. There will be a time after the Pesach and the Matzah that we're able to look back in the Mar and actually be able to say, and we grew from the Mar. The Jewish people did. You know, the, the mystics point out that, that the enslavery itself actually prepared us in some way for being the Jewish people. Whether it was the shared, collective, difficult experience that, that bonded us, that brought us together. Whether it was the, 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 the Midzah, the characteristic of submission, which, although we are stiff-necked people and we have a lot of uh, chutzpah, but some level of humility, some level of submission to God is a crucial ingredient in being the Jewish people. So the, yes, there was a lot of bad, but the good, uh, you know, the, but the experience of Marer actually taught us a lot. At the time, you don't learn lessons while you're going through a, a horror. You just get through it. But later on, we could reflect, and that's one of the things we're trying to do on Seder nights. You know, many people have the custom, you know, when, when my, my uh, grandparents were alive, they would share some, sometimes they would share some of their personal experiences, you know, and we share our own personal overcomings and challenges if, if, if it's appropriate, you know, but, but it's after the fact and we could learn and we could grow from it. And we have to recognize that there, there is always growth at the time we can't always get there. But after the Pesach, after the Matzah, we could look back and reflect on the Mara and hopefully be able to grow from it. Okay, so that is some of the, the overarching themes of 
uh, Pesach night. I think we gave an overview. I didn't do the textual analysis that I was hoping to do. I'll just share one last idea, something from the Arizal. The Arizal points out that Pesach night, uh, the word Pesach, he says, actually from Pesach, a speaking mouth. And that's really, you know, slavery, if you look at the, the text, when it talks about the Jewish people while they were slaves, they, you know, just like Moshe had a speech impediment, Moshe was representative of the people. No one was, no one was able to articulate what they were going through, right? And, and, and the Jewish people, even when they pray, it just doesn't even say they pray to God. It just said they cried out. They were so overwhelmed, they didn't even know, think to God. They're just, they're just crafting. They were just crying out in pain. The idea of Pesach, the idea of freedom, is that we're able to give meaning to our experiences. Exactly this idea of the mara at the end. The idea is that we're able to have a talking mouth. There are times in our life when we are, we're so overwhelmed that we don't have the ability to articulate what we're going through and what we learned from it. And the experience of Pesach is taking a moment, even if we're still going through something difficult, and able, we're able to give it some story. We're able to, what a story is, is basically there's a beginning, there's a middle, there's an end, there's meaning. Writing a story means giving meaning to what we're going through. And that's exactly what we're doing on Seder nights. We're trying to give meaning. Meaning to our own lives, not just remembering the past, but trying to give meaning to our personal current struggles. And trying to say, there is a way of giving some meaning to this. I don't get it, I don't fully understand it, but I'm going to create it into story. I'm going to speak. Just like, Mo, you know, Mo, again, when we're slaves, we don't have the ability to give any meaning. It's just like, what is this? We just have questions. The goal of Pesach is pe. Sach, to be able to articulate, to be able to find meaning and to create a story and recognize and the growth, hopeful growth, or at least the vision and the dreams they're able to aspire to, that is what we're trying to touch into on Pesach night. I know this sounds lofty. Like, how do we do it? I'm running around. I'm trying to put food on the table. I'm trying to host my guests. And, uh, but, you know, one of the things I try to do over the weeks leading up to Pesach is try to think a little bit about what are the areas that you're struggling with, that we're struggling with, that we're trying to, to create some meaning out of. And then during the Seder, you know, slip. Sneak 10 seconds in, you know, while you're drinking, while you're eating the matzah, it's like two minutes of silence, you know, or while you're drinking the wine, another 30 seconds of silence. Use those moments to tap into those ideas. You know, it starts now. It starts now as we start cleaning and we start thinking about what are the things that I need to break free from? What are the things I'm struggling with? And try to, to give it some meaning and to take advantage of the heightened emotions and spirituality of Pesach night. And during those lulls, during those quiet moments, to try to tap into that just a little bit. Okay, thank you for joining me. We're not going to have any other 11 o'clock classes until after Pesach, maybe a week after as well. And then either, I think the first week of May, we'll get started with this uh, book about uh, you know, Shiach, end of life. It'll be interesting. Okay.